HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S., They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very, like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Monday, February 1st, 2021. We're having a snowstorm today in New York City. It's uh, quite quite glorious outside my window. So this is the 277th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top restaurateur who refers to himself as a dining room guy, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to know that adversity is a terrible thing to waste. Now, this is something that I've learned from my guest today, Will Gadara, and his father, Frank Gadara, who's also an industry professional. We've all faced obstacles in our lives in some form or another, and now with COVID, it's certainly a a challenging time for everyone. But rather than wallow in it, let's seek to learn from the hardship and aim to come out on the other side even stronger and better than we were before. With the right mindset, we can create good from less fortunate times. So let's not waste opportunity. Instead, let's grow from it. That's my tip today. 
Now, I'm really excited to have my guest joining me. As I said, it is Will Gadara. He is a New York City-based restaurateur, formerly of the Make It Nice Hospitality Group, which he co-founded in 2011 and included 11 Madison Park, The Nomad, and Made Nice. Under his leadership with Chef Daniel Hume, 11 Madison Park received four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars, and the number one spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list in 2017, plus seven James Beard Awards, including Outstanding Service and Outstanding Restaurant in America. Will, who is a graduate of the School of Hotel Administration at Cornell University, is also the co-author of four books, the co-founder of the Welcome Conference, and the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and the host of Weekly Specials Podcast. So hello, Will. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. I mean, I'm I'm really thrilled to have this opportunity to talk with you and about your career and what you're you're working on now. So uh, as you heard me say, I got my my inspiration for my tip this week from you and your dad. And um, I, I think it's, it's, such a, it's such a wonderful lesson. I would love to start out uh, a bit going back to your childhood and talking a bit about the influence your dad had on your career, because I've, I've heard in, in, with interviews before with you that um, he did influence you a bit. Yeah, you know, my dad, I mean... So first of all, adversity is a terrible thing to waste. That is entirely his. My only role was giving him the platform at the Welcome Conference to tell his story, um, which was, in spite of a, a ton of success, filled with adversity, uh, personal adversity, professional adversity, all of which um, he he not only overcame, but in the midst of found ways to grow from. Um, <laughs> the one that uh, was never included in his speeches or probably any conversation I've had about him, uh, his fatherly version of that was, Will, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> um, but my dad was my hero growing up. My mother had brain cancer when I was a quid, uh, kid, ultimately becoming a quadriplegic. And, and that made my dad and I extraordinarily close. Not only was he my dad and my mentor, um, but we were teammates in our collective pursuit of taking care of my mom. And I mean, I've said this many times before, you know, I'm in the restaurant business because he was in the restaurant business. I was so in awe of him. I just wanted to be like him. And no matter what he did, that is likely what I would have wanted to do. It just so turns out that he was in restaurants and I love restaurants. Um, when I was a kid, uh, like anyone in the restaurant business, he worked long hours and would always put in a half day on Saturday. And that was when we got to spend time together. I would go to work with him on Saturdays. And at the time, he was the president of a company called Restaurant Associates. And um, they ran everything from Brasserie to uh, Cafe Centro and all the restaurants at the MetLife Building and the restaurants at Rockefeller Center. They did corporate dining. They did sports and events. I would go to work with him for two weeks every year around the U.S. Open. Um and <clears throat> he's just been such a big part of my life, um, talking to me about adversity, talking to me about intention, pursuing your career path in a way that 
you grow slowly from the bottom and, and learn everything one step at a time, such that one day when you are a leader, you can actually be the most empathetic leader possible, having walked in the shoes of those that you're managing. He's talked to me about integrity. One of the most powerful things he's ever said to me is when faced with difficult times, and this is most certainly a difficult time that all of us are going through, ask yourself what right looks like and do that. Um, to this day, he is the first person I call when I have something to celebrate, the first person I call um, when something challenging happens. Um, and I feel very blessed to have grown up with him as my father. Yeah, I, I mean, it warms my heart to hear you say all that. It really does. And uh, I, 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 yeah, I just I've I've heard you in in interviews and just but the way you you just told the story now is a bit different too and um it's a it's wonderful advice and um what so so you said you probably would have done followed his footsteps in whatever career path he was uh, but but he was in the restaurant business. So so you went to Cornell and and what were you thinking at that time um, as far as the direction of, of hospitality or that you wanted to get into? Um, did you want to work at a, a large organization like your father did? Or were you thinking you'd want to do your own thing? I mean, I always had an entrepreneurial bug in me. And so it was always my plan one day to own my own restaurant, though I didn't know exactly what path would take me there. When I graduated from Cornell, after spending some time in Spain, um, where I was at a hotel school, effectively working as a prep cook um, in exchange for room and board, um, simply so that I could just be immersed in the country and learn some amount of Spanish. Um, I came back and worked for Danny Meyer for a while and, and loved it. I was at Tabla. Um, with the late and great Floyd Cardoz. I was the maitre d' slash front door manager there. And I mean, I, I was enchanted by the organization. I loved everything that Danny stood for. I loved the sense of family that Floyd created within those walls. My first boss, um, the GM at Tabla, when I started there was Randy Garudi, the now CEO of Shake Shack, um, who I believe is one of the great leaders in our industry and has over the years, become an extraordinarily good friend. But at a certain point, my dad made me quit. Um, he believed that there were two types of companies. Um, he, he categorized them as restaurant smart and corporate dumb, and then ones that were corporate smart and restaurant dumb. And what he meant by that was where the salaried dollars were being spent whether the highest paid people worked in a corporate office or whether they worked in the restaurants themselves. And there were positive attributes to both types of companies. In the restaurant smart corporate dumb companies, um, they were generally more creative restaurants because the people that were being paid the most were working at those restaurants. And so the sense of autonomy and creativity and authorship was such that they were creating experiences that were truly authentic and one of a kind. That said, in the absence of true corporate infrastructure, they lacked some of the systems, the more refined systems that helped 
them either be more profitable or be more streamlined. And those were more well understood and embraced by the corporate smart companies where um, they had big corporate offices that had dialed everything down into a science and decisions were made at corporate on behalf of the restaurants. And so perhaps the restaurants weren't as forward thinking um, because no one that worked in the restaurants had as much of a sense of ownership in them, given obviously that they couldn't make any of their own decisions. But those were the companies that understood systems at a much higher level. And so he made me quit working for Union Square Hospitality Group such that I could go work at Restaurant Associates um, to learn the other side of the coin. Um, there, I went from working nights in one of New York's coolest restaurants in my, quote, fancy suit that I bought at Century 21 uh, and had a cool business card to working at the MetLife building where I worked from 5 a.m. until 5 p.m. for the first seven hours as the assistant purchaser for all of their restaurants there. And then the second half of the day as the assistant controller, where I learned accounting and bookkeeping and how to ultimately create and then read and understand and extrapolate the results of a profit and loss statement. Um, it was almost like graduate school for me. Um, I went from there to a couple other places at Restaurant Associates before ultimately going back to Danny. Uh, to help him open the cafes at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, it was clear to me that that was the kind of company I wanted to be a part of. But had it not been for my experience at RA, I never would have been able to do half of the things I've done over the years because I got to learn the kind of systems employed at a company like Restaurant Associates that's been doing it for a really long time and has gotten really good at a lot of things. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's a wonderful experience. And so you're back with Danny and you're at 11 Madison Park. What led you to take it over? And and then how, I mean, you know, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned the many accolades that 11 Madison Park has received over the years. I mean, how do you take a restaurant to that level? It's quite impressive. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Well, then I went back to Danny and I was working at MoMA running the cafes because ultimately he and I started talking and he said, I'd like you to come back. And I said, great, I would love to come back. Um, I think I'm ready to be a general manager and I don't want anything to do with fine dining. <laughs> um, I'd worked in fine dining for long enough, never at the level that we ended up taking it to at 11 Medicine Park, but I'd worked at Spago and Beverly Hills and Tribeca Grill and... Um, ultimately just realizing that I had spent my entire life since the age of 12 working in dining rooms and pursuing a path, um, devoted to service and hospitality, but was increasingly finding that the people I was working with, my counterparts in the kitchen, I had to convince them that the thing I cared about mattered as much to the guest experience as the thing that they cared about. And in something that wasn't fine dining, it was just less stuffy, more free. I, I, I believe that if you're not having fun when you're at work, that there's a real problem there. And I didn't think fine dining was very fun. Um, and so I ran the cafes at MoMA. I loved it. We had an amazing team, the, the opening management team at the Museum of Modern Art that I worked with. They're all some of my closest friends. I work still with some of them and they're some of the best in the business. Um, until one day Danny sat down with me and said, hey, do you want to go to 11 Madison Park? And I said, no, I, I don't want anything to do with fine dining. We've talked about this. 
Uh, but we made a deal that if I went to EMP and spent a year there, at the end of that year, I could go work at Shake Shack, which is where I really wanted to be. Um, love it. <laughs> although at the end of that first year, obviously, I'd fallen in love with the Love Madison Park and what we had the opportunity to do there. Um, in terms of how did we find the success that we did, um, I mean, there's so many different reasons why. Obviously, I think it's about hard work and luck, right? I think any success story has to do with those two things in varying doses. Um, but I think that most places that find success do it because they've put a stake in the ground expressing some point of view. And the way that I would refer to that is a point of view focused around this idea of unreasonable hospitality taking the foundation that that Danny built and trying to bring it to like an unreasonable three Michelin star level where our focus on graciousness and kindness and creativity and the delivery of an experience was something that me and my entire team became obsessed with. Um, and then alongside that, just pursuing it with intention um, we had strategic planning meetings every year. We tried to engage a culture of ownership where everyone on the team had a voice and where we were going, all because of my inherent belief that if everyone on the team feels in like a true sense of ownership and what you're doing, they're going to be that much more likely to help you achieve it. Um, and so whether it was kind of this unreasonable focus on hospitality as well as excellence or creating a culture of ownership or you know, taking it one step at a time, having the courage and conviction to say out loud the goals you want to achieve, but understanding that achieving them is going to take time. Um, I mean, it was obviously a wild, <laughs> a wild uh, 14 years of my life, um, but I loved every moment of it. Yes. And I have to say, I, I, I've told so many people my story of dining at EMP with a friend of mine. It was back in 2013. And I've told so many people the story of our, our magical dessert or the magic trick dessert, uh, which I still don't know how you guys did. But <laughs> I was, it was that, you know, when you said bringing fun to fine dining or making it, I mean, you, there was, there was, there's something so special about dining there and that experience I had. I loved it. And I've, um, yeah. And, and you brought magic in, in a different way beyond, beyond just being warm and hospitable and, and having delicious food and the ambiance. I mean, the whole package. So I actually get why you achieved so much success <laughs> at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I think you're inspired by different things over the course of your career. Um, one person who I've found endlessly inspiring is Daniel Belude, um, not only because of his generosity of spirit and, and warmth and how more than almost any of the extraordinarily successful chefs of that generation, he spends so much of his time investing in the next generation, not only chefs, but restaurateurs and everything in between. But also a lot of the things that he has done in his restaurants, um, I remember one time I had dinner at Danielle with my dad and my stepmom and they sent us as a course or, or we ordered it. I don't actually remember, um, duck a la press. And 
if you've never had duck a la presse or i mean it can also um, be poulet en vessie a paul boucous or any one of these preparations where they push over like three garridons to your table um and there's this lovely moment of anticipation where there's this beautiful setup in front of your table and other tables are looking over their shoulder to see what's going on at yours and you feel lucky and seen and and then they come out and they do the entire presentation. Um, and it just makes the meal fun. Now, here's the deal. Duck a la presse, it's a captain. Someone in the dining room making the sauce. Um, you know, they, they basically press the duck and they take the, the, the drippings and then they put it in a pan and, and they make the sauce right there in front of your table. Um, it, took, it took trust for Danielle to let his team make the sauce. And listen, I don't think it's even a question that the sauce would probably be more perfect had it been cooked in the kitchen by a team of very well-trained chefs in a much more controlled environment with much better light and all of that. But the way it made you feel in the dining room to be connected to the experience, to be a part of what was happening and to see a dining room person make it, it was just a better experience. It was more fun to the guests. And so even if the sauce was 5% less good, the experience was 100% better. And I was inspired by that. I was also inspired by seeing the look of excitement and the sense of ownership on the face of the captain who was doing it. There's something beautiful about knowing that you're trusted to do something and working hard to learn how to do something that's perhaps outside of your comfort zone. I think growth happens outside of your comfort zone. And those two things combined, like they inspired me to want to take it back to the restaurant, you know, like to do more of that. Um, it was that that kind of compelled us to do things like the magic trick. Um, and I said, which some people loved and some people hated, depending on your perspective, but hopefully more people loved it than hated it. Regardless, I believed in it. Oh my God. I, I absolutely loved it. And I, I, you know, I don't know how magic happens. I just, I'll just say, I believe in magic. Hmm. So, and you guys, it was a magical experience. And, and at, you know, all of your properties or my experiences at the Nomad as well, I always had magical experiences. Uh, you brought the hospitality with your team for sure. So let's let's jump ahead a little bit and talk about what's happening now uh, because so much has changed in the past year. Uh, I know you're upstate. <laughs> How have you switched gears to to running multiple properties to to running? Um, running your life now. I know you're involved in, in many different, different things. So it's interesting. Um, when the, when the pandemic started, I, I was probably like a week away from signing three different restaurant leases in New York city. Um, I was, I was very close to being on the verge of, of launching a whole new hospitality company. Um, and I consider myself obviously to be very lucky that it happened a week before I signed those leases, as opposed to a week after I did. Um, and, you know, and then invariably I came up to our, our place up in the Hudson Valley around March, whatever with my wife. And this is more or less where we've been hunkered down since. And I've spent my time up here doing, you know, a bunch of different things, uh, keeping my team intact through, 
you know, some various odds and ends here and there. Uh, we kept the welcome conference going um, in a virtual way, which was heartbreaking for me. Everyone, everyone had to suffer various forms of disappointment this year with really big, beautiful plans having to either be put on hold or on the back burner or canceled. And that was true for the welcome conference. We had an amazing lineup of speakers. I was really looking forward to this one. Um, but we found joy in doing everything that we did over the course of the year, whether it was weekly specials, when it was the YouTube show, or then the podcast. And um, and then working with my colleagues to start the Independent Restaurant Coalition, where, I mean, it, I think that experience was nothing short of extraordinary because, I mean, you look at that first word, independent, a group of people who are so vehemently independent in this moment of to you know, reference my dad's comment, adversity, finding strength in community and putting egos aside and coming together in pursuit of the common good. And this crazy idea of the IRC has grown to a huge community of chefs and restaurateurs across the country that actually have a legitimate voice in Washington to the point that, I mean, I guess very, very shortly after we started, I went down to the White House and was a part of a group speaking to our then president about uh, the need for relief. And I think, you know, there are so many silver linings to come out of everything. I think restaurateurs are invariably optimists. We need to be in order to be in this business, right? Everyone always tells you how hard the restaurant business is and how many restaurants that open invariably close and not, you know, not too long thereafter. You need to really believe in yourself. You need to be an optimist. And part of being an optimist is, always looking for the silver linings. And I think there's been many. Um, on a personal level, I've, I've experienced a restoration of appreciation. This notion that as life has slowed down, I've grown to appreciate the slower moments, the smaller things that in a crazy and hectic and chaotic life I was living for so long that maybe weren't those that I found joy in. Um, another silver lining has been that, I mean, community, whether it's through the IRC or through re-engaging in relationships with some of the people that are closest to me. I think during this time, and this is a lesson that I hope we all carry forward into the future, especially those of us who are in the business of, of providing hospitality to others, that we are no longer relationships don't just happen to us anymore. You need to choose them and pursue them. Um, and in terms of, you know, what I'm going to do on the other side of this and what I've been thinking about, where I'm at right now is I'm deciding what it is that I want to run towards as opposed to returning to doing the same thing I've always done. And I don't know what the answer is yet. My, my wife jokes that I, I say that, um, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and it's true. And, and I think there's so many people that are experiencing this. Listen, I, I believe that our industry is going to roar back. The, you know, all the roaring 20s references are, I believe them to be true. I think New York City is the most vibrant city in the world. I think restaurants are going to be packed. It's just a matter of when. I don't think it's going to be in the way, way, way too distant future. Um. I know that what I love is leading a team. I know that what I love 
is bringing together a group of people who collaboratively can be creative and in inspiring one another, develop extraordinary experiences. I know that one of the things I love is creating these magical worlds for a world that needs more magic. And I love hospitality and I love food. And so um, it'll be something in there. <laughs> I just don't have the answer for you just yet. That's quite all right. We will, I will, we and I will stay tuned. And I have to say, I mean, you know, what you have done over the past year with the Independent Restaurant Coalition and going to DC, I watched the video of it. I was so impressed. I, I was nervous watching. I can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> what your nerves were like, but um, it was, you did an incredible job at representing independent restaurants. And I've, I've been trying to, you know, support as I can. Um, and, and also I have to say the welcome conference and, and your weekly specials podcast, which I've listened to a lot of um, all have inspired me so much. And uh, this past week was the one year anniversary of the host conference I did uh, for the first time last January and that your conference certainly inspired my conference. And I feel um, I just, I just didn't see doing it, you know, this year and um, we'll see what happens in the future. But the fact that you were able to create a whole app <laughs> and, and, and work on bringing the, the industry together virtually is, you know, I admire that a lot. And um I give you a lot of credit. So, Well, thank you. I mean, that's the same collaborative environment, just with a different team. That's Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis and Aaron Ginsberg and Sandra DiCapua. Um, welcome conference meetings have always been some of my favorite. Um, just because the thing that we're getting to help build is, well, a community within our industry, but also I mean, the reason we started the Welcome Conference way back in the day was because I was going to all these chef conferences all over the world. And and I believe dining room work and service and hospitality are just as cool. And I want the same community around that. Um, and so just for me individually, forgetting about my role uh, as being one of the people to run the conference, but just to be able to engage with people who love what I love living all over the world. I mean... The in-person conference only, I think, at our at our biggest at Lincoln Center, we we had about nine hundred people there. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people engaging with one another, and in that sense, it was a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So, before we take a break, I have a couple questions from my last guest on episode two seventy six. I had on Hillary Scheinbaum. She's a freelance journalist in food, beverage, lifestyle, and more. And she has a new book out called The Dry Challenge, How to Lose the Booze for Dry January, Sober October, and Any Other Alcohol-Free Month. Hmm. So her first question, kind of covered, but uh, I'm sure you might have, have more advice here. So um, her first question is, having a father who's also involved in food and beverage, what's the best work advice your father has offered you, and why is it still relevant? Um, I'll give another, I mean, he's given me so many, like I could go on for an I hour. I figured you probably had another one. <laughs> this is a good one he's, he's given me. And, and I think it relates to 
our current collective experience right now. And so I'll share it here. Um, as I said, my dad like was very focused to me working every position in the restaurant all the way up uh, when I was a kid. Um, his big concern <laughs> as an executive, especially because I told him I wanted to go to Cornell when I was 12, um, and he wanted to convince me to, to go somewhere else, uh, A, because he wanted me to have more options uh, outside of restaurants, and but B, because so many of the Cornell grads that he interviewed when he was at RA thought they were ready to be like the, the CEO right when they graduated, and he hated that. And so he made sure that I was a busboy and a dishwasher and a host and a food runner and, and all of that. He made sure that I worked in kitchens and, and everything. Um, he was very, very involved with how my early jobs were selected. Um, and he always made sure that I would journal every step of the way, um, effectively capturing the perspectives that I had when I was in those positions. Because invariably, the perspective you has, have as a server, you can hold on to it for some measure of time when you get promoted to becoming a manager, but inevitably it goes away. You're now seeing the, the world through the eyes of a manager, and it's hard to relate completely to what it was like when you were a server. And so many people, the things that they bitched about their manager doing when they were a server, they find themselves doing the exact same thing again. Um, so one of the best pieces of advice he gave me was to journal like crazy on my way up such that when I was in the various leadership positions I found myself in, I could go back and reread what I wrote and tap back into that perspective, hopefully making me a more empathetic leader and ideally minimizing the number of times that I made the same mistake that I got upset with someone else for making. Um, the reason I think that's particularly relevant now is because the perspective we all have right now, I think it's taught us a lot. I, I've shared on my podcast more than one time, um, the restaurant Canlis in Seattle is run by Mark and Brian Canlis, the middle and younger brothers. But the older brother is named Matt, and he's a pastor. And on one of our calls early on, they're, they're very close friends. And so you know, upon occasion, we'll take time and set it aside to connect. He shared this prayer that an older woman had had uh, made at his church. And she said, I pray that the things we're forced to do today are things we choose to do tomorrow. And for different people, that's, that's different, right? Like, I've heard of so many people um, who have found a return to the family dinner where they're spending more time actually eating dinner around a table with their families. And all of them have said that they hope that on the other side of this, they don't abandon that tradition because of how much joy it's brought them during an otherwise difficult and uncertain time. And so this is now me sharing dad advice, but I think there's beauty in pausing and taking time during a tumultuous season to, to jot down our thoughts and the things that we've learned because part of the human condition is that when we move on, we sometimes lose focus of the things that seemed so clear um, just a little while ago. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Okay, the second question is, what is your favorite milk bar treat, given that you're married to milk bar queen Christina Tosi, who I love, who everyone <laughs> loves? <laughs> How can you not love Christina? 
Um, <clears throat> man, oh man. I mean, this summer, it was intense when she was doing Bay Club. We had a lot of different treats out of the brain of Christina Tozzi. My favorite like milk bar treat is the, the corn cookie. Okay. I have to say, I bait club, her bait club, I don't, her energy and her, I, I would, I would be scrolling on Instagram and just get sucked into watching like the whole, the whole thing. I wasn't baking, but I just, <laughs> I couldn't stop watching. <laughs> it happened to me several times. <laughs> um, yeah, she's amazing. I mean, she's incredible. Obviously I think that, but it's lovely to know yeah. that other people know that as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Incredible. So, and good to know that's your favorite. <laughs> All right. Let's take a little break here. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk industry news. I have a solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Will Gadara. He is a New York City-based restaurateur, formerly of Make It Nice Hospitality Group, which included 11 Madison Park, The Nomad, and Made Nice. He's the co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the Independent Restaurant Coalition and the host of Weekly Specials Podcast. Okay, Will, so it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Born ready. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, soft cocktail, or champagne? Red wine specific like it (laughs) tasting menu or a la carte a la carte small plates or large plates large plates communal table or chef's counter none of the above okay i think that's a first (laughs) um tipping or all-inclusive charge Oh, I just prefer it like a normal old school table in the dining room. Okay. I was, I didn't know if I should dive deeper into that, but yeah, (laughs) I love chef's counters. That's my, my favorite place, especially if I'm dining solo. Um, But I respect that. All right. 
Well, I'm glad you do. <laughs> yeah, everyone's different. It's so funny on this this game. Okay, so how about the the the, the always the the one that stumps people is um, tim- tipping or all inclusive charge. Oh, I prefer all inclusive, and I can okay. I can pine on that. But for the short answer, all inclusive. Okay. Participating in bait club or just letting someone else bake for you? <laughs> I'm in a very fortunate position where I can say with confidence, letting someone else bake for me. Yeah, I thought that's what you might say. Okay, I have a few more. Playing in a band or going to a concert? Playing in a band. Fun fact, um, I work with uh, John Weissman of Curious Elixirs, and he commented on my Instagram post that his cover band once um, was the intro to your band. When? <laughs> what year? Did he, did he say what year? No, no. I'll have to dive deeper into it, but... <laughs> He did say that, and he said your band was much better than his. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I like a reunion of them both, actually. I like Hmm. when when we can gather again. Um, But I'll I'll find out. I'll find out from John. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Manhattan. Fun. That's the game. That was <laughs> good game. I like that. <laughs> cool. Okay. So for industry news, uh, I just picked out an article that was on Bloomberg Pursuits. Michelin awards three stars to two female chefs in London. Helen DeRose and Claire Smith beat male rivals to top accolade. This was by Richard Bynes. And so this is uh, last week, Michelin Awards came out for London as well as for France, um, and this this is a big deal for for two females to get three three stars. I'm very happy for them. Uh, I would love to know, like, what do you what's your take on on Michelin and and, and awards being given out this year? Because I know it's interesting because London has been struggling through. You know, they've been on lockdown a lot, so it's kind of an interesting time to be to be presenting a list. Um, that's a good question. I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about whether giving out awards this year is appropriate or not. And so this is stream of consciousness. Um, A, I've never been to Helen's restaurant at the Connaught. Um, I have been to uh, Claire's restaurant core and it was unbelievable. I mean, just extraordinary. So thoughtfully executed. The dining room team was extraordinary. You talk about like a group of people who like believe with every ounce of their being that there is true nobility and service that group did. The food was delicious. The precision, the intention, the beauty. And I think she absolutely deserves three stars. And so I'm really happy for her. Um, listen, I think that There is something extraordinarily powerful about having something to celebrate. And so, and I understand there was much more to everything with the James Beard Awards, but 
We were on an IRC call the morning that the nominations came out. Uh, I think it was the long list before the awards ended up getting canceled. And that was during a time when those calls were pretty dark, where there wasn't that much good news to share. Not that there's a ton of good news to share now, but especially then. And that call, and I was leading them at the time, the first 10 minutes was just people on the call congratulating other people on the call for having gotten the nomination. And that idea of people being able to congratulate other people in our industry for something, anything, was a beautiful thing. And for that 10 minutes, everything felt normal again. And I think there's beauty in that. There's there's catharsis in that. And so, you know what? I'm happy that for the restaurants that have worked so hard to get that third star, and honestly with Michelin, right? If you don't get it this year, you need to wait an entire another year before you can get you know, it's only incremental lifts of one star for each year. Um, and so not only do I believe that Claire deserved the three stars, but I also believe that her entire team deserved a moment of celebration. Um, and I'm sure it was really therapeutic for them and energizing. And one of the things we all need most right now is more energy to keep us pushing forward. I agree 100%. And that was so well said. I mean, I'm super, I'm super happy for them. And I, I agree celebrating, celebrating moments and acknowledging hard work. And it is, is wonderful. And, you know, in this article, um, Michelin, they did say they began working on the guide in August, 2019. So um, I think, you know, they, 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 they were doing their research before uh, the pandemic um came through. And I think I'm really, uh, yeah, I'm really happy for them and everyone on the list. And I, I do think we need to celebrate moments and feel good about achievements. So, um, and listen, again, I haven't thought about this a ton and so I'm sure there's someone else that might have a compelling reason why it's not right that I might find myself agreeing with, but in this moment right now, when you ask me that question, that's where I stand. Yeah. And, and, and I'm with you on it. You know, uh, just say another uh, interesting, I mean, I haven't been to their, their restaurants. And when I was looking at the three star restaurants, um, there's a restaurant on there called sketch. Have you, have you been there before? I was at sketch years ago, but not for a proper meal. It was for some cocktail party. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I must've, I've been there for, tea and it's a really funky place i mean it's like it's like alice in, alice in wonderland like kind of willy wonka the bathrooms with like their eggshell bathrooms it's it's um uh it's an experience but i think they said the lecture room in the library and i know there were other rooms so i'm like so curious now to go back and experience sketch and also and and these other the other restaurants and it's uh of course this is this is making me want to travel and <laughs> dine out <laughs> that's what this list did for me um but yeah i'm super happy for them and everyone so okay so uh we're gonna i'm gonna do my solo dining experience now so this week it's at sushi on jones in the west village so here's the rundown 
the location, 210 West 10th Street, New York City. The concept, it's New York's first indoor sushi on Jones, which of course right now, pandemic times, it's only outdoor dining, so it was outdoors. Um, and they offer a traditional 12-piece tasting omakase in speedy 45 minutes, and they also have a la carte options. The owner is Derek Feldman in Uchu Hospitality. So why did I go? Well, I've been I've been dying to go out. You know, I want to support restaurants, and I was craving sushi and was in the village, so um, I just decided to go. And my experience was just a couple hours before I went on Resi, I got a, a table for one. It said it was a heated outdoor table. Um, when I arrived, there was literally one table in front of this little restaurant. And I checked in with the the manager and the sushi chef, and they're like, "Yep, that's your table." And you know, right now with with what's happening in dining, the, the staff is very bare bones, so they were the only two people working. And it's a small, intimate sushi restaurant, so they probably wouldn't have that many staff members, anyways. But um, anyways, I sat down at my 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 table right up front from the window, and it had a heat lamp on top. And the manager, who I found out his name was Tyrone, came out, took my order. Uh, we had a nice conversation at the end, and it really reminded me why I was dining out and not taking my sushi to go. So uh, what did I get? I got the 12-piece omakase, which was served six pieces at a time, and I also got hot green tea. My take? It hit the spot. It was a really nice variety of fish. There was tuna, yellowtail, salmon, uni, crab meat, eel. Um, it was a good variety. And uh, they have a little creative spin on it too uh, with the, with little extra, um, I guess, dollops of some sauces on top of the fish. Uh, the tea was wonderful, kept me warm. I love ginger, I had a nice helping of ginger. It was, it was a good experience and it was quick. You know, I think it was under 45 minutes I was I was out or out out of being out um the ambiance so one high top table in front of this storefront window under a heat lamp on a pretty nondescript street uh, in the West Village I'd say it's perfect for sushi lovers looking for a more affordable omakase option interesting tidbit sushi on Jones currently has three NYC locations and the owner also operates Don Wagyu which I've been to in downtown Manhattan and Ichimura at Uchi which is a at Uchu which is a pricier omakase I haven't been to it's not open right now but it's always been on my list personal fun fact so back on episode 122 in 2016, I went to the original Sushi on Jones on the Bowery when David Buhadana was the chef, and he's no longer involved, uh, but I remember having a great experience there, and that place has a little more ambiance um, at that location. The cost of this meal was $63. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. And their website is sushionjones.com. There we go. Well, have you ever been to Sushi on Jones? I've not been. Although I love that team and I had some of the best sandwiches of my life from Don Wagyu. So I'm sure it's delicious. Yeah. yeah it was, you know, sushi cravings. You just got to follow them. <laughs> Lucky in New York um, to live here and have, have excellent options. Okay. So it's time for the final question. My next guest is Dan Rowe. He is the founder and CEO of 
Brands Mart, which is one of the largest franchise restaurant franchise development firms in the world. And he's also the co-managing partner at the Kitchen Fund and Fran Invest. So, Will, what would you like to ask Dan? You know, when you when you go to their About Us section, um, underneath his name, it says, Dan specializes in finding the next big thing. Um, and yeah, clearly he's really, really good at that. <laughs> and my question is, listen, I, I don't know how that world works. My instinct is that you see something, you start to think there's something special about it, and then you ultimately do a pretty deep dive into it before you start really investing time and money into it. And so <clears throat> I'd love to know what are the things at that moment where you recognize it's time to do a deep dive outside of the food, what are the things you look for before choosing to devote resources to helping turn something like the halal guys from one of my favorite little street side stands into something that is all over the country? Yes, it's a great question. I'm I'm excited to chat with him because franchise businesses is not something I know that much about or have talked about um, with many people. And he is definitely the guy to talk to. So, um, I, I mean, also like five guys. I mean, how do you how do you take that into the the brand it's become today? So, um, great. I will ask him and. That's the show. I appreciate you so much. And I'm so glad we had the time to talk and I wish you the best. Uh, you know, I've, as I said, I've always been impressed with everything you've done and put together. So I can't wait to see what's next for you. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person one day in the hopefully not too, too distant future. Ditto. Thank you, Will. My guest today has been Will Gadera. He is a New York City-based restaurateur, formerly of Make It Nice Hospitality Group, which included Eleven Madison Park, The Nomad, and Made Nice. He's the co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and he's the host of Weekly Specials Podcast. You can follow him on social media at W Gadera. That's W-G-U-I-D-A-R-A. Also, you can follow at Welcome Conference and hashtag Save Restaurants. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is all in the industry, and my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Will. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back later this week with a new show, so I hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.